0: anti-Christian, um, uh, you know, rhetoric, and um, there's attempts to silence people that don't speak what you think they ought to speak. And so when you live in a country that says it's a free speech nation, that ought to be encouraged and that ought to be uh, the norm. But it's getting to the point where more and more people, um, if you don't agree with them, they'd rather Uh, call you names and try to hang labels on you, hoping they can damage your life in some way. And so if that's not persecution, I don't know what is. Amen. But we are people who are servants of God. The gospel is never bound. And I think what we need to do is just continue to preach. If, if you serving God gets you in trouble, you gotta serve Him harder to get you out of trouble. Amen. You gotta continue to serve to get out of trouble so we're going to talk about some people who are doing just that in other uh, more remote areas of the world places we don't hear about every day but they are important to God amen so father we thank you for this opportunity to come before your throne we want to study this and understand what our position is as far as uh, interceding for people in persecuted nations interceding for people and in, in interceding for their persecutors and so father we forgive all the persecutors and we ask you lord to shine your your light on their souls that they might see the way to the glorious gospel that they might be forgiven to be healed and to be saved, so we thank you for that privilege, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. And praise God. So we had two uh, <clears throat> two editions of Voice of the Martyr, and I decided to take uh, some from each one. Uh, so in August we had one, and then we have September's as well. August in August, it was uh, the theme was overcoming fear. And it's uh, especially devoted to Christians facing Islamic extremists. And so uh, we're going to talk, uh, share this story. This one is called No More Fear. It is how a former Muslim took the gospel to other Yemenis and nearly lost everything in the process. As a devoted Muslim, Ibrahim was always ready to defend the Koran. So when a man walked into a small store in Yemen one day in 1997 and asked him a startling question, have you ever read the Bible? He proudly told the man that he believed the Bible was full of error and distortion. At the end of their conversation, the man gave Ibrahim a New Testament and urged him to read it for himself. Ibrahim agreed, intending to make note of every problematic verse he found. But the more he read the Bible, the more problems he saw with the Koran. I was trying to help him become a Muslim, but it caused me a headache, Ibrahim recalled. After reading Jesus' teachings to love your enemies, bless those who curse him, curse you, Ibrahim considered leaving Islam. He knew, however, that following Jesus Christ would bring shame to his family and endanger his life. At the man's urging, he continued to study the scriptures more deeply and asked God to reveal the true way to him. Finally, about a year later, he placed his faith in Christ. In my heart, I felt peace to accept Jesus, he said. I accept Jesus the month before Ramadan. The peace Ibrahim felt in accepting Jesus Christ was soon joined by an extreme fear of being discovered as a Christian. For four years, he hid his Bible in the backyard and studied it in secret, expecting each day to be caught by his wife or someone else. Ibrahim had every reason to be afraid. In Yemen, Christian converts from Islam can be sentenced to death. Muslim families consider it extremely shameful. For a family member to become a Christian and extremist groups like Al-Qaeda and conflicts like the ongoing civil war in Yemen have further complicated life for believers. Then one day he decided the fear made no sense. I was tired of fear and I asked myself a question. If I believe in Jesus and this is true and he grants me eternity, why should I fear? So if they came then to kill me, I was ready to say, welcome. God changed my extreme fear to extreme boldness. After being baptized in 2002, Ibrahim felt led to establish a church in Yemen. So he finally decided to share his faith and vision with his wife, Fatima. When he told her, she was furious that he had left Islam to become a kafir or infidel. And she worried about how their Islamic community and her family would respond. I was looking at Jesus as somebody who ruined my home and family, she said. For Fatima, it was more about betraying her family roots than just leaving Islam. Her grandfather had kept a handwritten genealogical record and traced the family back to Bansu Hashim, the clan of the prophet Muhammad. Fatima wanted a divorce, but Ibrahim refused because it went against his Christian beliefs. As she and Ibrahim learned to live with their differences, Fatima couldn't deny the changes in her husband's behavior. He had stopped flirting with other women and had started showing her greater respect. The couple soon reached an agreement on how to live peacefully together. They divided their home into separate living areas and Ibrahim agreed not to pray before dinner anymore. Their youngest son had emulated his prayer at Fatima's parents' house once before sending Fatima into a near panic. Eventually, their extended families learned about Ibrahim's faith in Jesus Christ, and both families disowned them. Ibrahim's family even began telling their neighbors that he had been killed in an accident. They couldn't live with the shame of people knowing their son was an infidel. After Ibrahim shared his vision of planting a church with others in Yemen, they suggested he visit a city where many Muslims were coming to Christ. He began making frequent trips there to disciple Christian converts from Islam. But in 2009, Islamic extremists spread Ibrahim's name and personal information, including the location of his store on the Internet. They dubbed him the leader of the Yemeni church, and claimed that he had forced people to stomp on the Koran. This was not the truth, Ibrahim said. They said this to get to me and to harm me. Fearing for his life, he decided to flee Yemen. After weeks of praying and waiting on God's direction, he felt called to settle in a neighboring country. He left behind his homeland as well as his wife, their two boys, and the church he had worked so hard to establish. Other Yemeni Christians took leadership of the church, which had grown to more than 60 believers. Although Fatima had conflicting feelings about Ibrahim's move, she knew it was best for their family. I was sad, but in one sense, it got, I got rid of the problem, she said. After settling in the neighboring country, Ibrahim focused on two things, getting a job and praying that his wife and sons would come to know Jesus Christ. Using his business background, he started working for a Muslim shopkeeper. And when he wasn't working, he shared the gospel with Yemeni immigrants at that market. Over time, he led three Yemenis to faith in Christ, and after several months, they started a house church. Fatima, meanwhile, had begun taking English lessons from an American woman in Yemen who urged her to read the scriptures in order to learn something about her husband's religion. The more she compared Jesus' lessons on love, forgiveness, and mercy with the Quran's teachings on revenge, the more she was drawn to God's word. She considered becoming a Christian but feared her family would kill her. I felt like I was breaking from, be- breaking from betraying my family, she said, and it was terrifying. Everything changed for T- Fatima one night in February 2010, however, when she dreamed about a man in white who reassured her with his words. Do not be afraid. She woke up trembling, reasoning that the dream could have only come from God. Fatima prayed and accepted Christ as her savior, despite knowing the potential consequences. When she called Ibrahim to tell him the news, she was met with joyous cries of hallelujah through the tiny speaker in her phone. Fatima and the boys joined Ibrahim two months later. When my family came from Yemen, they, it, the question I asked myself was, are you ready to sacrifice your family for the sake of Jesus, Ibrahim said. I told my wife, there is a price to be paid if you follow Jesus. Ibrahim and Fatima struggled to raise their boys, Yousef and Omar, as Christians in a nation where Islam is the official state religion. Their only option was an Islamic education, and Yusef, their older son, felt increasing pressure to participate in Islamic prayers at school and return to Islam. Ibrahim told Yusef's teachers that as a Christian family, they didn't want their son praying Islamic prayers, but the teacher said he had no choice since it was an Islamic school. While it was difficult being the only believer his age in the school, Yusef tried to remain faithful to Jesus Christ. Then one morning in January, Yusef received a startling phone call. Today is your birthday, and we don't want you celebrating with unbelievers, the caller said menacingly. Thinking his friends were praying a plank on his 17th birthday, Yusef laughed it off, said goodbye to his mother, and left for school. Around noon, Fatima received a voice message from Yusef's number. We killed your son and we will kill you too, a man said. Ibrahim and Fatima rushed to the school, but Yusef wasn't there. Then they went to the police, fearing the worst for their son. I was saying to the Lord, I trust you, but this is really hard for me to bear, he recalled. When I was encouraging Fatima to calm down, I myself was not able to do it. Fatima felt hopeless. I was just thinking, give me my son's body, she said. Hours after receiving the voice message that her son had been killed, intense doubts crowded Fatima's mind as she wondered if Allah had punished her for leaving Islam. Sobbing, she stopped herself. No, she cried, falling to her knees. As she prayed for God's help, she felt his peace wash over her. For the first time, she felt as if he was in control. That evening about 6 p.m. Fatima received a call from Yemen. Mom, I'm here, Yusef said. What I am telling you is the truth. I just cried, she said. I had wanted my son's dead body and then he was alive. Extremists had kidnapped Yusef and flown him to Yemen where his captors beat him and threatened to hunt down his family if he didn't return to Islam. They held him there for three days until, terrified, Yusef agreed. The extremists then let him go on the condition that charges against one of Yusef's friends who had been arrested for informing the est- extremists about Yusef were dropped. Weary of further Islamic attacks, Ibrahim Fatima and their youngest son, Omar, fled to a country in Africa, and Yusef joined them a few weeks later. Ibrahim and his family struggled during their first months in the new country. They didn't know anyone. They didn't speak the language. They had trouble finding jobs, and they had no money. And adding to those difficulties were Yusef's resentment toward his father, whom he blamed for his suffering at the hands of the extremists. It was the hardest two months I've been through, Ibrahim said. Without the ability to fellowship with others, the family started their own church. Every Thursday, they ate lunch together, read the Bible, and worshipped the God who had brought them through so much, trusting he continued to have a purpose for them. As Ibrahim's visa approached expiration, he applied for refugee status, which was later granted. During the process, he met met other Yemeni refugees. I said, thank you, Lord. Now I understand why you sent me here, he recalled. Ibrahim's family church soon grew into a house church as some Yemeni and a handful of Sudanese refugees began to join their Arabic worship services. Abraham's family has at times experienced great need for provision from the Lord. They have often seen him provide through the body of Christ and frequently share whatever they have with other believers. Everything is from God, he said. I knew I was working with Jesus and he would provide. Ibrahim's church labors faithfully among Yemeni refugees, meeting their needs, witnessing for Christ, and distributing Bibles. Today, one room in Ibrahim's house serves as a storage for food items, which he distributes to 50 refugee families on a weekly basis. The ministry also pays school fees for 20 refugee children and distributes Bible and memory cards loaded with digital Bibles and Christian literature. In addition, Ibrahim takes great pride in a Yemeni youth soccer team that he provided with uniforms and equipment as an outreach to Muslims. The purpose for all of this is for Jesus to be glorified, he said. We want to show them that we are their brothers and sisters, that we are Christians and we love them. We want to show them love. This war really shook Islam. Now it's not difficult to tell somebody about Jesus. But not everyone is grateful. When Ibrahim started paying students school fees, some Yemenis grew angry, claiming he was trying to lure children away from Islam. They accept the help because they are desperate, but the Muslims who are fanatical are a source of headache for us. They accuse us of giving food just so people will change their faith. Since 2013, Ibrahim's ministry team has baptized 13 Yemenis, and they expect to baptize three more soon. Yemenis have scattered throughout the world since the outbreak of civil war in 2015, and Ibrahim has since begun reaching out to Yemeni refugees in many nations, supported by a team of six workers. He also helps plant churches in these communities and visits them when possible. About a year ago, Ibrahim's son Yusef joined his ministry, serving Yemeni refugees and helping plant churches. Yusef, now in his 20s, earned a degree in biblical studies and is now studying social media and video, so he can use those tools to better share the gospel and promote the church's events. Ibrahim sees this as a time of harvest among refugees, especially those from Yemen. He said he has never seen an openness to the gospel like what has occurred since the outbreak of civil war. It is sad that there was a war in Yemen, he said, but there is another side to it that I am happy about. This war really shook Islam, the Koran, and all these things. Now it's not difficult to tell somebody about Jesus. I am convinced that this is a time not to keep silent. It is a time to talk, to be active. Until he can return to Yemen safely, Ibrahim will continue pursuing Yemeni refugees with the gospel and the love of Christ wherever he can find them, even if he and his family face persecution along the way. So that was their story. Amen. Amen. Praise God. This is a story about a gentleman. It's kind of short. This one is kidnapped by terrorists in Syria. Um, Abdul, yada yada yada. We just call him Abdul. That's pretty good. A B D U. That's pretty, and his father were determined to keep their workshop open despite the civil war that was destroying their Syrian homeland. Abdu's mother, sister, and two younger brothers had moved to a larger city for safety when the war broke out in twenty eleven, but he and his father had stayed behind to continue managing the shop. They were also concerned about protecting the land that had been in their family since nineteen twenty, when their ancestors had fled the Armenian genocide in Turkey and immigrated to Syria. When clashes between the Free Syrian army um, army al-Nusra front, Islamic front, and self-proclaimed Islamic state would erupt in their neighborhood, Abdu and his father would hunker down and try to avoid getting caught in the crossfire. Still, they fully expected to keep the shop open until the fighting was over. On June 1st 2014, however, their plans for the future were shattered when members of the Islamic front, composed of foreigners from Iraq and Turkey, surrounded Abdu and a Muslim employee on the street in front of their shop. The Islamists allowed the Muslim employee to leave, but they slid a black bag over Abdu's head, held a gun to his temple, and forced him into their vehicle. After a short drive, they dragged him into a cell where they bound his hands and legs behind his back and sedated him until he passed out. I woke up in pain and started screaming, he recalled. When one of the group's leaders asked Abdu what tribe he was from, another militia member answered for him. He's not from any tribe. He's Nasara, which means Christian, the man said. Enraged, the leader began screaming that they should have killed him immediately. The following days were the most terrifying in Abdu's life. The Islamists hit his toes with a stick, cursing him with his par- and his parents. They made him face a wall while they kicked him repeatedly, calling him Nasara pig. They shackled him with chains and kept him in a cell filled with mice and scorpions. They ran knives over his legs, hands, and neck, threatening to slaughter him. And every time he drank the water they gave him, he fell unconscious. They also asked him about other Christian families and which of them had money. On the sixth day of his captivity, Abdu's kidnappers made him call his family while they beat him to make him scream. They demanded the equivalent of $270,000 for his family who had no way of paying the ransom, though Abdu's family was from a... Christian background, they had never attended church, but since moving to a larger city, his sister had begun attending an evangelical church and had come to faith in Christ. When the Islamists called with their ransom demand, she recited part of Psalm 23 and encouraged Abdu to remain hopeful because she and the church were praying for him. I was not yet a genuine believer at that stage, he said, and yet throughout his ordeal with the Islamic front, he found himself repeating a prayer that he says he did not understand at the time. Lord, take me out of here and I will become your servant, he prayed. On the evening of his tenth day in captivity, Abdu was approached by a guard who gave him the news he most feared. It's over, the man told him, they will execute you. One of the Islams removed Abdu's blindfold, and for the first time he saw the faces of his captors with their heads and necks wrapped in scarves. They then loaded him into a truck and drove to a creek where they again blindfolded him, ordered him to kneel in the sand. He prayed they would execute him with bullets rather than knives. abdu began counting to 50 as they demanded expecting the sound of gunfire at any second but when he got to 10 instead of gunshots he heard the surprising sound of their truck driving away in disbelief he waited cautiously before lifting the blindfold when he did he saw that he was alone and he was free within a month isis had taken control of the region from raqqa syria to mosul Iraq, pushing out other Islamist groups and systematically removing any traces of Christianity. Several Muslim acquaintances in town urged Abdu and his father to leave. As soon as Ramadan is over, there will be killing, the Muslims told them. On July 25, 2014, Abdu and his father headed there, heeded their Muslim neighbors' warning, abandoning the shop they were so hard to keep and the land they had, been in their family for almost 100 years. They undertook a nerve-wracking eight-hour journey through the desert that required them to pass through an ISIS checkpoint where the guards somehow failed to notice the obviously Christian names on their IDs. When they finally arrived at a Syrian government checkpoint, the soldiers were stunned to see two Christians emerging from ISIS territory. Abdu and his father reunited with the rest of his family, and they eventually made their way to a neighboring country where Abdu placed his faith in Christ on October fifth, 2015 at an evangelical church. He soon came to forgive and even love his kidnappers. I started reading the Bible, he said, reading all about God's love, and I thought, maybe God loves us all. I really felt I should love even my enemies who kidnapped me. God can judge them. I will love them. Abdu and his family cannot return to their home because ISIS, while still in control in the area, built a mosque on their property, symbolized Islam's triumph over Christianity. Though ISIS was later driven out of the town, local Muslims would never allow the mosque to be destroyed. Their property and possessions are total loss, but Abdu says he has gained something far more precious. Yes, you can lose everything, he said, but life in the Lord cannot be lost whatever happens. A group of Christian hating extremists had driven Abdu toward saving faith in the one whose name he acclaimed his whole life, and now nothing can separate him from the love <clears throat> of Jesus Christ. Amen? Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Praise God. Okay, this one, it's called Praying for a Cross to Bear. So, um, there's, let me see, what country is it from? I'm trying to see if it's from a specific I guess different places. Looks a little happy couple. <laughs> it's just neat to see people who really love Christ and the joy they have. You know, I mean, we can we can take a lesson, huh? <clears throat> Amen. We can live more joyfully than we do. All right. Richard Wormbrand had a comfortable life as a pastor in communist Romania. He had a salary that supported his family and a congregation that loved and trusted him. But he was watched. But as he watched other Christians suffer for their faith, while a tyrannical dictatorship destroyed everything around them, Richard was not at peace. Why, he wondered, had God spared him from persecution and trial? Desiring to answer Christ's call to take up his cross and follow him, Richard and his wife, Sabina, began to pray that God would give them a cross to bear. And on February 29, 1948, their prayers were answered. As Richard walked to church that winter morning in Bucharest, members of a secret police abducted him, taking away not only the comfortable life he had known, but also his identity. From now on, they told him, you are Vasily Georgescu, labeling him with a generic Romanian name to conceal his true identity. He disappeared without a trace, and Sabina had no information beyond the outrageous rumors that she heard. One said he had been taken to Russia. Another claimed he had died under interrogation. Though overwhelmed with worry from not knowing where Richard was or even if he was alive, she continued to minister to the spiritual and material needs of others and continued Richard's work. Like Richard and Sabina, many Christian couples today bear their cross together as they work to advance the kingdom in restricted nations and hostile areas around the world. While they may not specifically pray for a cross to bear, they know their work comes with a price. Couples like Raymond and Susanna in Malaysia, Arjun and Radha in India and Jiang and Mai in Vietnam willingly take up their cross, understanding that not, that not doing God's work is far more dangerous than doing his work, as Sabina once said. Raymond and Susanna in Malaysia. Eyewitnesses said it was like a scene from a movie. On February 13, 2017, three black SUVs surrounded Pastor Raymond Coe's silver sedan and forced it to the side of the road. Men dressed in black got out of their vehicles grabbed pastor co and shoved him into one of the SUVs while men on the motorbike stopped by approaching cars stopped any approaching cars the SUVs and pastor co were gone in 40 seconds and no one has heard from him since susanna is convinced that her husband's abduction is tied to a 2011 confrontation with officers from the selangor islamic department as she and her husband hosted a dinner One night, for sponsors of a charity they had started in 2004, 30 officers raided the event on the assumption that they were evangelizing Muslims, an illegal act in Malaysia. While some Muslims were among those attending the dinner, its sole purpose was to thank sponsors of their uh, Hope Community Charity, which helped the poor, single mothers, children, drug addicts, and those diagnosed with HIV-AIDS. About 120 people from various backgrounds attended the event at the local church. During the raid, the officers took photographs and videos of those in attendance, and that was just the beginning of the intimidation. After that incident, my husband and I received a death threat, she said. They received mail with white powder believed to be anthrax. Pastor Ko also received a box containing two bullets and a letter threatening to kill him and his wife. Still, Pastor Coe was undeterred. He continued, though there was some fear and anxiety, Susanna said. He felt that the Lord called him to fulfill the Great Commission, and that means to every tribe, nation, and tongue. He does not discriminate so that we just carried on our work with the poor, the needy, the marginalized with God's grace we carry through. After those initial threats, they continued their work with no further problems until the pastor's abduction in 2017. It was a big shock to myself and my family and Christian community as well as the whole country, Susanna said, of the abduction. While Susanna went on to the police station to file a report on her missing husband, they interrogated her about her husband's activity, specifically whether he proselytized Muslims. It was strange that he wasn't asking me the normal questions you would ask the family of a victim of abduction, she said. Finally at 3 a.m. Susanna lost her patience with the interrogators. I'm not answering any more questions she told them. I have my rights and I'm going out there to look for my husband. The important thing for you to do is go out there and look for my husband. Susanna believes the Lord had been preparing her husband for the abduction. Pastor Koh had been taking three-hour prayer walks early in the morning, and he had been memorizing large portions of scripture. He would tell me, I have just finished memorizing 1 Corinthians 15. She recalled, I was thinking that he is really a great example to follow. He was also physically prepared as he was in good health and had been playing soccer with the teenagers on a league he had started. Despite these reassurances and the knowledge that Raymond is in God's hands, Susanna has struggled with her husband's absence. The hardest part is not knowing where she is, what happened to him, and how he is doing right now, she said. Right now my children are going for counseling because this has taken a toll on them physically as well as emotionally and psychologically. But we thank God for the Christian community and also the worldwide church that has been an encouragement to us. They have expressed their support through prayers and sending postcards to us that really uplifts our spirits and encourages us in many ways she is also thankful for the way god has ministered to her during her trials god has been very real and personal to us i remember the first three weeks i was very lost and even had panic attacks we decided to go for a silent retreat and that really helped me to fix my eyes on jesus during that time god spoke to me through his word One verse that is close to Susanna's heart is Psalm 46.10, which says, Be still and know that I am God. I don't need to struggle and strive, she said. I can just rest in the assurance that he is with me and he will never leave me or forsake me. He will work all things out for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. As Susanna prays for the release of her husband, she also prays for their whole family that God will create a new person in us that will be strong and patient, godly, all these qualities through all these trials. She also asks for prayer for the churches in Malaysia, that the churches in Malaysia will be strong amid subtle persecution and that they will speak out the truth and for truth and justice, and also that they would love people into the kingdom in this. Susanna wonders and worries about her husband from day to day, but she has forgiven those responsible for his abduction. From the beginning, I have decided to forgive them because they know not what they do. And I follow the examples of our Lord Jesus Christ, she said. God really had to deal with me first to forgive them, then pray for them because they need to know the Lord. If there's going to be transformations in Malaysia, there needs to be transformation in the lives of individuals. All right, so that's the end of their story. Arun and Radha in India. When Pastor Arjun, Arjun was a Christian convert from Hinduism, proposed to his wife Radha, he made sure she knew what to expect. I am a minister and have been attacked many times, he told her. In the future, you may be attacked. I may go to jail. Sometimes we will have food, sometimes we will not. This will be the life. Rada accepted his proposal without flinching. Live or die, she said. Or ride or die. <laughs> I will live for Christ, amen. Since then, they have been forced to move three times. Arjun has been beaten numerous times and accused of forced conversions, while Radha has been personally threatened and watched Hindu radicals invade their church. When Radha's parents began arranging a marriage for her uh, when she was in the 12th grade, she made it clear that she wanted to marry a pastor. I will not marry any other, she said, otherwise I will not get married. Radha wanted to be actively involved in ministry, and she knew marrying a pastor would be the best way to do that. I had that burden, she said. Because Arjun had been attacked so many times, Radha's parents were instantly hesitant to approve the marriage. But despite their concerns about how he would provide for her, they eventually gave their consent. After getting married, Arjun and Raja Radha set a goal of sharing the gospel in 34 villages, and they also planted four new churches. But their work was not welcomed by local Hindus. One day, a group of intoxicated Hindu radicals descended on one of their churches, beating the pastor and even some of the women, an extreme offense in Indian culture. Knowing that persecution can be a normal part of the Christian life, Arjun now prepares his church members to face it themselves. He uses examples from the Bible, such as stories of how Daniel, the apostles, and Jesus were persecuted. Many church members have been encouraged, he said. Now they don't have the fear of persecution. They know it is true and that they have to face it. This is the Christian life. Radha agreed, saying the church members now understand and are prepared for whatever may come. It was very difficult because we had the fear, she said. Now such suffering has become like a day-to-day routine-like. One Sunday morning last year, Arjun got another opportunity to live out what he had been teaching. During worship service, 25 Hindu extremists entered the church and beat him for an hour. Other believers tried to intervene, but the extremists held them off until police arrived and took Arjun to the hospital. When Arjun's landlord heard about the attack, he evicted him and his family from the house. Arjun searched for a new place to live, even while still suffering from the beating, but no one was willing to rent to his family a home. But that's the part heard about Arjun's situation. We helped the family find to live. That is farther away, but say, Our students ask for prayer that their ministry will grow and that church will established no matter what happens to them. Whatever happens is for a few minutes or days. It's what we need. Doing something like this for God is something that we are going to be involved in. Alright, so that's the end of their story. Uh, Giang and Mai. Vietnam. Almost no one was in favor of Mai marrying Pastor Giang. Her family who are communists strongly oppose the marriage as did local communist party officials and friends at the school where she worked. My older brother is a policeman in the city and is in a very high position in the province, she explained and my two younger brothers are also policemen. They forbade me from marrying him. But Mai chose to marry Pastor Giang against the wishes of her family and friends, and she soon paid a price for it. When the Vietnamese government learned that she had married a pastor and later confirmed she had also become a Christian, they fired her from her position as vice principal at the school. At first, Mai worried about being unemployed, but Giang who himself experienced trouble finding jobs in the past, read her verses of scripture and assured her of God's provision. Soon Mai found a new purpose, serving the Lord a with her husband. With Mai's background in education and Jian's experience in ministry began teaching children in their village how to write and speak Vietnamese. The children, who ranged in age from 6 to 17, were members of an ethnic group that had its own language every evening the children gathered on the dirt floor of the couple's home for a one-hour lesson since their home had no electricity they had to stop at sunset two months into the lessons Mai and giang shared the gospel with the children they knew it was risky since they lived in a communist area and some of their children's fathers were policemen but they were determined I was not afraid, Mai said. Most of them go back home and share the gospel with their parents. Their parents did not make trouble. Eventually, the class grew to 32 students, requiring them to form a second class. Then in 2015, Mai and Giang started training young people to become Christian workers, even sending them out to share the gospel in different regions. When the two young men from their first class of 15 students went into, went to a communist hero village, a village where a popular communist leader once lived, a policeman warned one of them not to evangelize the area. The student then called Giang to ask for guidance. Gyeong was at first worried about his students going to the communist hero village, but then he asked them, did you pray? He was at peace with their plans. He told his students to pray they make plans to visit the area, and if they are not going, you don't go. He said, the students are bearing fruit. One group of to faith in Christ after they shared the gospel with two hundred villagers. Though Mai lost her job as vice principal of the school, the Lord gave her opportunity to minister together, reaching children of communists with the gospel and training Christian workers to advance God's kingdom in Vietnam. After Richard Wormbrand was released from prison in 1964, his wife Sabina asked him what his plans were for the future. The life of a spiritual recluse, he replied, and Sabina told him she had had the same thought. The years of solitary confinement with little hope of release had transformed Richard, who had a dynamic personality as a youth, into a contemplative man. I did not wish to fight any wars, even just wars, he wrote in his book, Tortured for Christ. I wish rather to build living temples to Christ." it was with the hope of quiet years of contemplation ahead that i left prison but shortly after richards release he came face to face with a communism that was uglier than all the tortures he had endured in prison pastors sorrowfully confessed to him that they had been for the secret police even against their own conscience because they feared imprisonment if they refused Children of Christian martyrs told him they had been thrown with Okay. And the churches were making, where did I leave? Ah. Ever more compromises with communist authorities. Richard and Sabina again grew restless. They could not pursue a life of contemplation while churches around them were being destroyed by an atheistic political ideology. I decided to do what all Christians have to do, Richard wrote, to follow the examples of Christ, the Apostle Paul, and the great saints, to give up the thought of retiring and to take up the fight. What kind of fight would it be? He hoped to strengthen the underground church, the only force that could overthrow the tyranny of communism by the power of the gospel. After being ransomed out of Romania in 1965 and arriving in the West, Richard and Sabina discovered a new cross to bear, one they took up tirelessly. The West sleeps and must be awakened to see the plight of captive nations, Richard wrote. As members of Christ's body, we are all called to bear the cross together as we advance God's kingdom. Our crosses may come in the form of, unbelieving, of an unbelieving family member, a spouse uninterested in the Great Commission, a medical diagnosis or loss of employment. But whatever it is, the testimonies of our brothers and sisters in Christ encourage us as we bear our cross. Like Susanna Coe, we can pray with the confidence that God is with us and wants us to use our cross for his purposes. Like Arjun and Radha, we can look to God's word for stories that will prepare us and encourage us. And like Giong and Mai, we can seek the Lord's will, knowing that an apparent loss may lead to new work for God, for his kingdom. Amen? Amen. So those are amen. Praise God. Those are our stories. Praise God. Amen. 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 So we're going to pray, and uh, we have several prayer requests um and also got my prayer out praise god amen I I know where stuff is in this program, right? I do. So we have these areas to pray for in China. Historic church in southeastern China closed. An influential unregistered church in southeast China was forced to close earlier this year after months of hostilities. In May, officials broke into the Xing Siding Church in Fujian province for an inspection and issued a fine equivalent of $36,000 and closed the church. In Ethiopia, uh, after lockdown, large- attacks against Christians in southern Ethiopia three people left three people dead and thirty eight homes destroyed in two thousand seventeen. It would have been easy for Christians in the region to give up instead, church leaders in this rural region committed to encouraging their people in Pakistan. A young Pakistani man who came to Christ was murdered shortly after an Islamic holiday. Gohar gave his life to Jesus after listening to a Christian radio broadcast, and his whole life changed. I thank God I left Islam. I want to bring more people to Christ, he told a member of the radio program follow-up team. In the Middle East... Although the Middle East is predominantly Muslim, a number of churches operate openly in countries like Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. One Middle Eastern Christian leader believes these churches have too long been operating in a spirit of fear. In Eritrea, authorities arrest hundreds of believers in June. The Eritrean government increased its pressure on Christians in June, arresting about 500 people in various raids, according to Voice of the Martyr. In one raid on an underground church, authorities arrested 45 believers, including children, pregnant women, and elderly people. In Nepal... Tufan became a believer two years ago, but he didn't tell his family about his new faith until his baptism earlier this year. His mother tried to persuade him to renounce his faith in Christ. When that failed, the family kicked him out of his house. In Cuba, Cuban church leaders recently gathered with other Christian leaders outside the country for a time of fellowship and encouragement. We feel less alone knowing that you are praying for them, one of the pastors told a Voice of the Martyrs Worker and Laos, two members of a radio ministry serving the Kumu ethnic minority recently visited four churches in a remote Laos highlands where Kumu believers joyfully welcomed the two women in the love of Christ. In Israel, while a a few Messianic congregations in Israel have been able to obtain official non-profit status and its accompanying benefits, most of the more than 300 Messianic congregations in the country have not. In China, uh, Jiang Rong, the wife of Early Rain Covenant Church Pastor uh, Wang Yi, was released on bail after six months in jail. Uh, she and her husband were arrested on December 9th during a raid on their unregistered church of approximately 800 members <clears throat> in Nepal, a young Nepali athlete, has chosen to follow Christ at the cost of losing all family support for his dream of becoming a professional athlete. In Niger, when Karina Ali became a Christian after reading Bible stories about Jesus, her Muslim father was so angry he kicked her out of the house and refused to pay her school fees. In Tajikistan, the family of imprisoned pastor, Bakaram is looking forward to his scheduled release in April 2020. Hey, the past two years have been difficult. His wife has experienced various stress-related health problems, but Gulnora and the children say they feel they are now on now on the downward slope. False. Responsible, two men held falsely responsible for the catalyst to the 20, 2008 anti-Christian Kandamal riots have been released. India's Supreme Court ordered the release of these two men. Four other Christian men remain in prison. In China, Court agents informed the lawyer for imprisoned pastor Wang Yi that the government's investigation into the pastor has concluded, even though the pastor's lawyers have not met with him since his arrest. In Uganda, after becoming a Christian, Fazira's Muslim husband chased her away twice. Fazira accepted Christ after her son, who had long battled an illness, experienced healing. Secretly, she started attending church and eventually brought her children. When her husband realized she was no longer attending the mosque, he chased her with a stick. In Nepal, a young woman is now financially destitute, but spiritually rich after coming to know Christ. She was married at age 14, a common practice among Hindus in Nepal. Her family was impoverished, however, she, her husband decided to work in Saudi Arabia. She became ill and spent nearly everything her husband was earning on various treatments, including visits to a witch doctor. Um, let me see. In Sri Lanka, as Christians worshipped inside their Assemblies of God church in the Gomfer district on June 6th, Buddhist monks organized a demonstration outside. When the pastor called police, they arrived, but they also brought the monks and the assembled crowd inside the church with them. In Indonesia, um, officials closed a church in central Indonesia after neighbors protested its existence. Pastor Satoris built a home in the Bantu neighborhood in 2003, intending for it to double as a house church, When community members learned he was using the house for non-Muslim religious activities, they protested. Uh, Let me see. In Afghanistan, Christian workers report several encouraging developments in a difficult mission field of Afghanistan. Seven new believers formed a house church after being baptized recently. Translators are working on three new Bible projects for minority languages, and followers of Christ are now present in every one of Afghanistan's 34 provinces. In Vietnam, A Hamong believer has been imprisoned as a result of poor treatment in prison where he has spent the last year on false charges because of his Christian faith. After Cobb became a Christian, villagers destroyed his house. In Uganda, Charity struggled with depression after her husband became a Muslim and abandoned her, but she stood her ground when he threatened to take their three children. In Mexico, eight Christian families expelled from a village. After a family of believers in southern Mexico led seven other families to Christ, village leaders told the Christians they had 15 days to leave the village and that they were losing their inherited land in Pakistan. Muhammad, a former imam, became a follower of Christ in 2015. He got baptized, removed his son from a jihadist training camp, and began eagerly sharing his faith with others. So we're going to pray for all of these situations, for God to step in and resolve them. Also for uh, protection, amen, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that they would continue to speak out and preach the gospel as the Lord leads, that the church would increase. And that they would, uh, you know, gain great freedom in Christ. Amen. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you are a forgiver of sins. We ask you to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Lord, that we are cleansed in your blood, that righteousness against that there is no law. So we know that whatever we ask out of this voice, Father, that it will be answered according to your will. So we thank you, Lord. We pray for these persecuted people and all persecuted nations. We thank you, Lord. We submit to God, resist the devil, and he must flee. Satan, we command you to flee from us seven ways. Vengeance belongs to you, O God. We resist retaliation against our accusers. We are serving you. These people are serving you. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? You who sit in the heavens are laughing. Behold, they're threatening and stretch forth your hand to heal, O God. Do signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. I declare that the way of the ungodly shall perish. Let them fall by their own counsels. Lord, we ask you to judge the people. Judge us, O Lord, according to our integrity that is within us. Let the mischief of they who persecute us return upon their own head. Keep us as the apple of the eye. Hide us under the shadow of thy wings. Thank you for teaching our hands to war so that the bow of steel is broken in our arms. Thank you that you have given us the necks of our enemies. Shut the mouths of the lions that roar their lies against us and cause the tongue of the wicked persecutors to cleave to the roof of their mouth Stop the pointing of the finger against your servant. Stop those who point the finger against us without a cause and who hate us. It is time for you to work, O Lord, for they have made void your law. Lord, we know it's nothing for you to help. Help us, O Lord our God. Save us according to your mercy. Let our hands prosper and prevail against our enemies. But the Lord is with us as a mighty, terrible one. Father, we thank you. You are with all of these people as their mighty, terrible one. And therefore, our persecutors shall stumble. They shall not prevail. They shall be greatly ashamed, and they shall not prosper. Their everlasting confusion shall never be forgotten. And we thank you, Father, that those who live godly before you will suffer persecution. But we thank you that you know how to deliver us out of all temptation and all persecution in jesus name amen and praise god amen amen and amen again praise god amen praise god praise god and father we pray for this nation we pray for greater boldness for christians in this nation not to succumb to hate speech not to succumb to accusation not to succumb to the threats of the enemy not to water down your precious message, Father, that we will preach the gospel with greater boldness, with signs following. And we thank you, Lord, for giving your people a mantle of boldness, faith, and Holy Ghost protection. In Jesus' name, amen and praise God. Amen, 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 amen. Praise God, praise God, amen. So uh Miss Juan if you'll put some music on, if anybody needs prayer, come on up and I'll pray for you. Praise.